Book three, chapter eighteen of Strangers and Pilgrims by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Strangers and Pilgrims, Book three, chapter eighteen. Now, three years since, this had not seemed so good an end for me, but in some wise all things wear round betimes and wind up well. Elizabeth has been nearly five months a widow. It is the end of July. She is at Panatha, a little Cornish town by the sea, at the extreme western point of the land, a sheltered nook where the climate is almost as mild as the south of France, where myrtles climb over all the cottages, and roses blossom among the very chimney-pots, where the sea has the hues of a fine opal or a peacock's breast, forever changing from blue to green. Penartha is a combination of market town and a fashionable watering place. The town, with its narrow high street and bank and post office and market and busy-looking commercial inn, lying a little inland, the fashionable district consisting of a row of white-walled houses and one huge many-balconied hotel, six storeys high, facing the Atlantic Ocean. Among the white houses, there is one a little better than the rest, standing alone in a small garden, a garden full of roses and carnations, mignonette and sweet peas, and here they have brought Elizabeth. They are all with her, Gertrude, Diana and Blanche, Anne, the old vicarage nurse, who has left her comfortable retirement at Hawley to wait upon her darling, and Malcolm Ford, who lodges in a cottage near at hand, but who spends all his days with Elizabeth, with Elizabeth, for whom alone he seems to live in those bittersweet hours of close companionship, with Elizabeth, who is never to be his wife. God has restored her reason, but across the path that might have been so fair and free for these two to tread together, there has crept the darkness of a shadow which forebodes the end of earthly hope. He has her all to himself in these soft summer days, in this quiet haven by the sea. No touch of pride, no thought of conflicting duty to divide them. But he knows full surely that he will have her only for a little while, that the sweet eyes which look at him with love unspeakable are slowly, slowly fading, that the oval cheek, whose wasting line the drooping hair disguises, is growing more hollow day by day that nothing love or science can do, and he has well-nigh exhausted the resources of both in her service, can delay their parting. Not upon this earth is he to reap the harvest of his labours, not in earthly happiness is he to find the fruition of his faith. The darkest hour of his life lies before him, and he knows it, sees the bolt ready to descend, and has to smile and be cheerful and beguile his dear one with an aspect of unchanging serenity, lest by any betrayal of his grief he should shorten the brief span in which they may yet be together. Physicians, the greatest in the land, have done their utmost. She had lived too fast. That short reign of splendour in Park Lane, perpetual excitement, unceasing fatigue, unflagging high spirits, or the appearance of high spirits, the wild grief that had followed her baby's death, the vain regrets that had racked her soul, even in the midst of her brilliant career, 
the excitement and fever of an existence which was meant to be all pleasure, these were among the causes of her decline. There had been a complete exhaustion of vitality, though the amount of vitality had been exceptional, the ruin of a superb constitution, worn out untimely by sheer ill-usage. "'Men drink themselves to death very often,' said one of the doctors to Malcolm Ford, "'and women just as often wear themselves to death. "'This lovely young woman has worn out a constitution "'which ought to have lasted till she was eighty. "'Very sad. "'A complete decline of vital force. "'The cough we might get over, "'patch up the lungs or make the heart do their work, "'but the whole organisation is worn out.' Mr. Ford had questioned them as to the possible advantages of change of climate. He was ready to carry her to the other end of the world if hope beckoned him. "'If she should live till October, you might take her to Madeira,' said his counsellor. "'Though this climate is almost as good, the voyage might be beneficial, or might not. With so delicate an organisation to deal with, one can hardly tell.' That disease, which is of all maladies the most delusive, allowed Elizabeth many hours of ease and even hopefulness. She did not see the fatal shadow that walked by her side. Never had the world seemed so fair to her, or life so sweet. The only creature she had ever deeply loved was restored to her. A happy future waited for her. Her intervals of bodily suffering she regarded as an ordeal through which she must pass patiently, always cheered by that bright vision of the days to come when she was to be Malcolm's helpmeet and fellow-worker. The pain and weariness were hard to bear sometimes, but she bore them heroically, as only a tiresome detail in the great business of getting well, and after a night of fever and sleeplessness would greet Malcolm's morning visit with a smile full of hope and love. She was very fond of talking to him of their future, the strange world she was to see, the curious childlike people whose little children she was to teach. Funny coloured children with eyes blacker than the sloes in the Devonshire lanes and flashing white teeth. Children who would touch her white raiment with inquisitive little paws and think her a goddess and wonder why she did not spread her wings and soar away to the blue sky. Her brain was singularly active. The apathy, which had been a distinguishing mark of her mental disorder a few months ago, which had even continued for some time after she had left Heatheridge Hall, had now given place to all the old vivacity. She was full of schemes and fancies about that bright future, planned every room in the one-storey house, bungalow-shaped, which Malcolm was to build for her, was never tired of hearing him describe those sunny islands in the southern sea. They had been talking of these things one sultry afternoon, in a favourite spot of Elizabeth's, a little curve of the shore where there was a smooth stretch of sand, sheltered by a screen of rocks. She could not walk so far, but was brought here in a bath-chair, and sometimes, when weakest, reclined here on a couch made of carriage rugs and air pillows. This afternoon they were alone. The three sisters had gone off on a pilgrimage to Mordred Castle, and had left them to the delight of each other's company. Oh, "'How nice it is to be with you like this,' Elizabeth said softly, 
putting a wasted little hand into Malcolm's broad palm, a hand which seemed smaller to him every time he clasped it. I wish there were more castles for the others to see, only that sounds ungrateful when they're so good to me. Do you know, Malcolm, I lie awake at night often. The cough keeps me awake a good deal, but it would be all the same if I had no cough. I lie and wonder at our happiness, wonder to think that God has given me all I ever desired, even now after I played fast and loose with my treasure and seemed to lose it utterly. I hope I'm not glad of poor Reginald's death. He was always very good to me, you know, in his way, and I was not at all good to him in my way. But I can't help being happy, even now, before the blackness has worn off my first morning. It seems dreadful for a woman in widow's weeds to be so happy and planning a new life. But it is only going backwards. Oh, Malcolm, why were you so hard upon me that day? Think how many years of happiness we have lost. He was sitting on the ground by the side of her heaped-up pillows, but with his back almost turned upon her bed, his eyes looking seaward, haggard and tearless. You might as well answer me, Malcolm, but I suppose you do think me very wicked. Only remember, it was you who first spoke of our new life together. My darling, can I do anything but love you to distraction, he said in utter helplessness. The hour would come, alas, too soon, in which he must tell her the bitter truth, that on earth there was no such future for those two as the future she dreamed of, that her pilgrimage must end untimely, leaving him to tread his darkened path alone, verily a stranger and pilgrim, with no abiding city, with nothing but the promise of a home on the farther shore of death's chill river. Would he meet her in that distant land? Oh, yes, with all his heart and mind he believed in such a meeting, that he should see her as he saw her to-day, yet more lovely, that he would enter upon a new life, reunited with all he had loved on earth, united by a more spiritual communion, held together in heavenly bondage as fellow subjects and servants of his master. But even with this assurance, it was hard to part. Man's earth-born nature clung to the hope of earthly bliss, to keep her with him here, now, for a few years. The chalice of eternal bliss was hardly sweet enough to set against the bitterness of this present loss. He must tell her, and very soon. They had often talked together of serious things during these summer days by the sea, talked long and earnestly, and Elizabeth's mind, which had once been so careless of great subjects, had assumed a gentle gravity, a spirituality that filled her lover with thankfulness and joy. But pure as he knew her soul to be, almost childlike in her unquestioning faith, full of penitence for the manifold errors of her short life, he dared not leave her in ignorance of the swift coming change, dared not let her slip out of life unawares like an infant that dies in its mother's arms. Should he tell her now, here in this sweet sunny loneliness, by this untroubled sea, calm as that sea of glass before the great white throne? The hot passionate tears welled up to his eyes at the very thought. How should he shape the words that should break her happy dream? 
Malcolm, what makes you so quiet this afternoon? she asked, lifting herself a little on her pillows in the endeavour to see his face, which he still kept steadily towards the sea. Are you beginning to change your mind about me? Are you sorry you promised to take me abroad with you, to make me a kind of junior partner in your work? You used to talk of our future with such enthusiasm, and now it's only I who go babbling on, and you sit silent, staring at the seagulls, till I'm startled all at once by the sound of my own voice in the utter stillness. Have you changed your mind, Malcolm? Don't be afraid to tell me the truth, because I love you far too well to be a hindrance to you. Perhaps you have reflected, and have begun to think it would be troublesome to have a wife with you in your new mission. My dearest, he said, turning to her at last, and holding her in his arms, her tired head lying upon his shoulder. My dearest, I never cherished so sweet a hope as the hope of spending all my future life with you. But God seldom gives a man that very blessing he longs for above all other things. It may be that it is not well for a man to say, Upon that one object I set all my earthly hope. Our life here is only a journey. We have no right to desire it should be a paradise. It is not an inn, but a hospital. Darling, God has been very good to us in uniting us like this even for a little while. For a little while, she cried with a frightened look, then you do mean to leave me. Oh, never, dear love, I will never leave you. Why do you frighten me then by talking like that? Why do you let me build upon our future till I can almost see the tropical trees and flowers and the very house we are to live in and then say that we are only to be together for a little while? If you were to be called away, Elizabeth, to a brighter world than that you dream of, leaving me to finish my pilgrimage alone, it has been too sweet a dream, dearest. I gave my life to labour and not to such supreme happiness, and now they tell me I am not to take you with me yonder. I am to have no such sweet companionship, only the memory of your love and bitter, life-long regret. At this he broke down utterly, and could speak no further word, but still strove desperately to stifle his sobs, to hide his agony from those fond, questioning eyes. "'You mean that I am going to die?' she said very slowly, in a curious, wondering tone. "'The doctors have told you that.' "'Oh, Malcolm, I am so sorry for you.' and for myself, too. We should have been so happy, for I think I am cured of all my old faults, and should have gone on growing better for your sake. And I meant to be very good, Malcolm, never to be tired of trying to do good, so that some day you might have been almost proud of me, might have looked back upon this time, and said, after all, I did not do an utterly foolish thing in letting her love me. Might have been. Should have been. The words smote him to the heart. Oh, my love, he cried, live, live for my sake. Defy your doctors and get well for my sake. We will not accept their doom. They have been false prophets before now. 
prove them false again come back to life and health for my sake she gave a little feeble sigh looking at him pityingly with the two brilliant eyes no she said i am afraid they are right this time i have wondered a good deal to find that getting well was such a painful business i am afraid they are right malcolm and you will begin your new mission alone it is better perhaps for all intents and purposes except just a little frivolous happiness which you can do without you will have your great work still god's blessing and the praise of good men what have i been in your life all the world to me darling all my world of earthly hope elizabeth in a voice that trembled ever so little i have told you this because i thought it my duty it was not right that you alone should be ignorant of our fears that if or if that last great change were at hand you should be in the smallest measure unprepared to meet it but i do not despair oh no darling our god may have pity upon us even yet may grant our human wishes and give us a few short years to spend together strangers and pilgrims she said in a thoughtful voice pilgrims who have no abiding city i was very foolish to think so much of our new life in a new world the world where we shall meet is older than the stars end of book three chapter eighteen